This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Lara Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on how we can build the relationships that drive success and happiness at work. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we're taking calls. That's 844-WHARTON. What are the challenges you're facing in actually connecting with the people that you work with? And what tricks have you learned to make connecting easier? We would really love to know. Give us a call. Join the conversation. We are at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And call in, if only, to join me in welcoming an old friend back to Women at Work. Dr. Melanie Katzman, who many of you may recall was my original co-host of the show, has just released a really potent new book called Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. I think you know Melanie's a business psychologist and advisor, a consultant to the world's top public and private companies, government agencies, and nonprofits. She's the founder of Katzman Consulting, a founding partner of the global nonprofit Leaders Quest, and has helped countless people and businesses find their way while teaching, raising two fabulous kids, and tempting fate with her many athletic adventures. So, Melanie, welcome back to Women at Work. Oh, it's so great to be back with you on Women at Work, Laura, and thank you so much for that very gracious and generous introduction. It is my pleasure. so good to hear your voice. So, Melanie, you are one of, busier than, as some may say, uh, you know, a one-armed wallpaper hanger. You do everything. Um, what made you decide with everything that's going on to write this book now? You know, it's a great question, Laura, and one of the things I would say is that there's busy and there's fulfilled, and time expands when we integrate our many identities, and that's what this book felt like for me. It was a chance to take what I've learned as a psychologist, what I've been practicing with companies in the boardrooms, what I've seen as a partner in Leaders Quest working around the world, and the data that I've identified as an academic. So kind of put it all into the blender, came up with ways to simplify important messages and put into a book that hopefully will do exactly as you said, help people find meaning and joy at work while well, still being successful. <laughs> well, it's clear that this really brings together all the ways that you work and the things that you've worked on. But talk to me about how you worked every day. Like when when you were on the show, you were making time for this. You had your consulting business. You, there was Leaders Quest. You were involved in so many things. How did you, the nitty gritty of how did you carve out time to write a book? You know, one of the things that we all often forget to do is to look at time. And I'm somebody who looks at time on paper. I like to have my calendar where it's tactile and I can see where I can place blocks into my day, my week, and my month. So you don't do this digital calendar thing? I have the digital calendar thing, but for the creative strategic planning, I really want to see where I can secure time to do the things that require my attention in an undivided way. Do you do it every day, or do you do it once a week, once a month? So what I'll do if I have a project, so let's talk about the book. I, I had said to my team, you know what, I really wish that I could get one of those genius grants, if only I was a genius, <laughs> and I could go off and you know, be at writing camp and I could write. And Jerry, who runs the administrative side of Catsman Consulting, as many people have heard about on the show, she said to me, well, why don't we give you the Catsman Consulting genius grant? <laughs> she said, every year we do a capital improvement, whether it be updating our office or our tech or do some training for our team. How about we take you off the calendar on Thursdays? We chose Thursdays because it had the right balance. A lot of my clinical practice is on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and I often traveled for consulting on Thursday, Friday, and Monday. So Thurs- Thursday seemed like a good day. Okay. And then we were absolutely militant about it. I wouldn't even do a conference call. Thursdays were my writing day. It you you me really to just said no to everything else? I did. I did because, you know, it's one thing to be busy, and it's another thing to be kind of crazy busy, you know, where things... Just fill your calendar. So 
one of the things I talk about in my book, and I really believe in, in my own life, is about being intentional. Mm-hmm. I set an intention. I'm writing this book. I don't know exactly how long it's going to take. When I started, I didn't know what form it would have, but I knew one thing for sure. If I didn't make time for it, it wasn't going to happen. And so it's really inspirational and also instructive, given that yesterday I had one of those days that was just nonstop meetings that happened to me. I wasn't in the driver's seat. Exactly. And you know that the meetings will always happen. And there'll be the email to answer, the call to do, the errand to run. And so removing those distractions actually became a real reward for me. I would look forward to Thursdays. And trust me, writing isn't always easy. <laughs> no. So there were many times where I was in pain from the difficulty of the writing. And still throughout the week, I knew that that was my oxygen pocket. And that that was where I could go. And, you know, a lot of writing requires reading and researching and reflecting. So it's not just all sitting at your desk. But I tried to set up an environment both in my mind, kind of psychically setting the right mindset, and then also finding the places where I would feel comfortable and re-energized to be able to focus on something that had a very different rhythm and structure than the rest of my week. One of the things that's particularly, um, I think, important in that is it's such a contrast to what you do every day, which does lead us to the book, because, you know, writing is such a solitary process, and you spend your time really engaging with others to help them engage with other people. Um, So, Talk to me about how your practice and your work with others shaped really this kind of like theme of connection and values-driven connection that permeates the book. So one of the things that it's probably worth giving a shout-out to um, women at Workforce, you know, we've had many great guests on the show when we were doing it together, and one of them, you know, John Gazermer asked me after the show, what would be the book that you would write? And I told him what I thought, and he looked at me and he said, you know, I would like to hear about what you've seen as a psychologist who sees people in therapy as well as in their offices as a strategic consultant. And there was something about that question that suddenly made me realize he's right. Now, he's a branding specialist. (laughs) (laughs) But he said, when I heard that, I got on the subway and I just started jotting down things that I heard over and over again. In 30 years of work, whether I saw people privately or in groups, in corporate settings, I was hearing the same things over and over again and often teaching some of the same lessons and learning some of the same lessons over and over. And so Connect First started as a stack of index cards where I captured the things that people were telling me, things like, I want to feel included. I want to be praised for a job well done. I wish somebody would say thank you. Nobody knows my name. I mean, these are basics, Laura, but no matter what level that people are working in an organization, I would hear that they were in pain or feeling undermined or disconnected from their jobs for things that could easily have been corrected. See, that's so powerful, and it was, and I want to explore that a little bit together, because um, you've taken these complex feelings that we have, like when we don't feel valued at work or when we're frightened or we feel undermined, um, and boiled them down into these kind of simple things. It's part of the beauty of it, but it's also mind-boggling. Why don't we realize that we need to hold on to these little things like saying please and thank you? And, and you know, as we get you know, into some of the other details, of course, we build on those. You know, the book isn't what some people call, oh, the mismanners of work. But by the way, we have so many uh, missed opportunities to get the basics right that I felt I needed to start with that. You know, and I, in today's society, we are interconnected. Our computers and our electronics allow us to feel as if we are with another person. But oftentimes, we're collecting likes and followers, but we're not forging deep relationships. You know, we're ending a sentence with an emoji as if that somehow cleared the air. But that's not a conversation, (laughs) right? No, it's not. Um, And everything is so immediate, right? Like, I send you a request. By the time it lands in your inbox, I'm expecting a response. And I'm feeling the urgency to give you that response as a recipient of your request. And so in this very urgent often frightened worlds, we can talk more about how people end up feeling more scared that they need to, we're trading off civility, decency, and respect for what we think is efficient, 
So in the long run, slowing things down a bit will speed it up to the end and towards your goal much faster. So this experience, like I know I've had it, that there have been times when something's happened at work, sometimes in the moment it upsets me or it's the thing that wakes me up at three o'clock and my heart stops, mm-hmm. starts beating and my head's going about this interaction that happened and mm-hmm. what it means. Or worse, I'm worrying about the interaction. I'm looking into the future like, you know, this person cut a sentence off and now I'm like, am I losing my job? It's not totally rational, but that's what happens at three in the morning. What's going on with us that we are the that we have such intense emotions that we can't that are prompted by the workplace and not we don't know how to address in the workplace? Well, so, Laura, what you describe, I think, is an experience that. I would anticipate many of the listeners have shared. We go to work and we walk into the office, we assume a certain role, and there's an expectation that somehow, coolly and calmly, the work will get done, as if we are robotic and only operate from the coolest, most analytical side of our brain. It's just not true. Workplaces are filled with people. People are filled with emotion. Everyone's talking about we want a passionate workplace. Well, guess what? Passion runs hot. That is a hot emotion. If you want passionate <laughs> people, then you want, you know, then you're going to have people who are unleashing a whole host of emotions. Anger and love look awfully similar if you're looking at it, you know, the scientific data of what lights up in our body. So we have these emotions. If they're not expressed, we may be able to dampen them down. But when you're going to sleep, suddenly your defenses are also down, and boom, the emotions pop up. And what you're describing, that dialogue in your head, happens for people when they are half asleep or sometimes when they're in the office. And unfortunately, we often have conversations with ourselves. Right. Inaccurate assessments of the circumstances. Yeah, I don't and ever don't like do a good with job them. with self-therapy at 3 o'clock in the morning. Isn't that funny? You are just probably one of the masses who don't, <laughs> right? I mean, how many of us can have that same corrective conversation? Instead, we go into like a, a rabbit hole of negativity, and then you end up waking up in the morning, you're agitated, you go to work, and you're looking for data to confirm the hypothesis that you've generated in the middle of the night, which, by the way, as we've already decided, is probably not that accurate. <laughs> it's like a form of emotional p-hacking. You're going to go out and prove true the thing you want to prove true. And what's unfortunate is sometimes people get up in the middle of the night, their phone is by their bed, and they shoot off an email or a text or a Slack message that they probably will regret in the morning. Oh, please. I did that once. I'm never going to do it again. But there's many reasons not to have your phone by your bed, and that's one of them. Absolutely. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is Dr. Melanie Katzman, author of the just-released book, Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. If you have a question or you just want to say hi to Melanie, give us a ring. We'd love to hear from you. That's 844 What's keeping you up in the middle of the night and how do you resolve it during the day? So, Melanie, part of what I found so amazing as I started to read the book was, yes, some of it in the beginning were like basic building blocks that did feel like, why do we forget our manners at work? And it did build on itself to talk about really how to navigate complex relationships and situations. Um, but I do want to start for a minute with this this framework of manners. Um, mm-hmm. Is it that these are formal conventions that we should just all engage with as a social code? Or is it that manners serve another purpose in our interactions with each other? Manners are really a form of showing respect, of conveying dignity to the other person. So if I smile at you, we're biologically wired to connect. It's almost irresistible to smile back. And it feels good. It's kind of a mini shot of happiness. And that's a great way to enter a room to show up at work. And you could call that manners, or you could call that actually biology working for you and getting your engine running. And so whether we learn to do these things, because we were told this is what a nice and well-behaved socialized person does, we should do it because it actually benefits everybody in the room. Right. I mean, I think that so many things that um, we can do benefit ourselves and others. That's the beauty of it, right? So that when you offer praise to somebody else, you are indicating that you are in a position to make an evaluation. 
But so many people think that if I say, Laura, you're doing a good job, that somehow that diminishes me and you're going to get promoted and I won't. Where it's just the opposite. If I can generously identify what my colleagues are doing well, I'm demonstrating comfort and confidence and also the ability to make an evaluation and, if you will, pass a judgment, a positive one. So is it that we forget how to interact with each other in these ways because it's a stage of our career? Is it about the cultures of our workplaces? You suggested before some of it is that we're spending way too much time online. Um, Why have we lost sight, or is it that we never knew how to afford each other that kind of respect and to see people and honor them this way? I think there's a number of contributing factors. I think one of them is actually, if you think about the Industrial Revolution, that we kind of became mechanized as individuals. And bought into the idea that we need to be members of an assembly line, whether it's a very sophisticated one with a fancy corner office or somebody who's truly working in a factory. So so I think part of this has been a um, historic sense that work is not where emotions belong. So we have that. Then I think that there's also the speed piece where I'm being efficient and I'm not going to take the time to do these things. And then we don't see people modeling that. Mm-hmm. So if I have a boss who just says, hey, do this, or sends me something to do, it's unlikely that I'm going to then turn to the person who's reporting to me and demonstrate greater kindness. So we don't see great models, and that's unfortunate. And then I think the last piece is about the remote working. True, people have electronics that they use to communicate with the person who's down the hall or even right next to them. But the good news is we now have the ability to work from home, to work more flexible more flexibly, and that's great. But it doesn't remove the necessity of figuring out a way to connect to your colleagues. It takes a little bit more creativity, and I talk about some of those ways, and we can talk about them now. But it does require that we bring those people who we don't see naturally into the office because it's harder to exercise some of these um, you know, polite behaviors when somebody's invisible. Absolutely. So one of the things that this brings up for me is, you know, what's almost become like a mantra of culture starts at the top. And you're yep. mentioning that, you know, people follow the, the the role models in the office. To what degree can the people who, um, you know, are listening or reading the book and they're not the one who sets culture, but they're part of the team, can they start a grassroots movement that can change Absol- things? Absolutely. And that's why I wrote the book, really, Laura, is, you know, I wrote a book which was written for everybody to read, no matter what point they are on the power continuum. When I go to the bookstore and I see the books that are in the business section, they all seem to be written by titans of industry for (laughs) titans of industry. And I wanted to write something that if you were just starting your food truck or if you were somebody who had just graduated college and was starting your first investment banking job, or if you are an entrepreneur, you know, beginning your sustainable farm, you could find yourself in the book. And we all have the power and I believe the responsibility to affect culture. Um, just this morning, I was doing a workshop for a group of senior leaders who themselves didn't even see how senior they were. Um, and one of the conversations we were having was around time management. And there were people there from Singapore, from Milan, and from the U.K., and um, California. And how do you manage the fact that somebody's always going to be in pajamas when you're on a global call? (laughs) But unfortunately, too often, it's always the same person in pajamas. So there are things like raising the awareness of people. When So you could be the person who is actually organizing the meetings and saying, by the way, just want to do a quick check. Are we going to continue to run this meeting such that it's always going to put so-and-so on the phone once they supposedly were home? It's just a question, right? but you're raising somebody's awareness about it. Mm-hmm. Or you ask your manager, I, I got this email from you at 9 o'clock at night. I just want to check. Do you need me to respond tonight, or is this something for the morning? Now, if you have a manager who's just insensitive but not malintended, they may say, oh, of course, just do it when you get in. But then you start to set the stage of, well, then maybe our subject lines should indicate when something is urgent or if it's spent after hours, when it can wait. So, so it, there's these kind of 
just, you know, subtle but not so subtle ways of bringing your management into the conversation. That I love that you made it tactile into those specific things that we really experience, many of us, every day. Um, for those who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm Laura Zarrow, and my guest is Melanie Katzman. She just released her new book, Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And give us a call. We'd love to know, where do you see people being insensitive or rude at work? And have you found a way to make it better? We'd love to have you join in the conversation or just bring the question, because if there's anyone who's an expert, it's Melanie. That's 1-844-WHARTON-942-7866. So, Melanie, in that mechanism, I want to talk about this time thing. Um, And because it's complex, Um, Time is one of our – we can't expand time. We're all desperately trying to make more out of time. You talked before about how you crafted time out of your schedule in order to write a book. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to me about how we can create um, some healthy norms with our calendars and do it in a way that's respectful of people around us but also nice to ourselves because this is personal. Like my calendar is eating me alive. Right. So there's a few things here. One has to do with being fully present. You know, so too often I speak to women who are trying to juggle their careers, and they ask that popular question, how do you balance it? So as somebody who has worked their entire career, I have children who are 27 and 30, you know, what I would say is you never are in balance. <laughs> never. You need to be happily in the tension thrive in that tension. If I was always at home, I probably would feel unsettled. And if I was always in the office, I would feel as if a big chunk of my life was missing. So there's always going to be a tension and there's a healthy tension there. But when you are trying to be at work, while you're watching your kid's soccer game, or you're preparing dinner, and you're on a conference call, or you're checking your emails while you're sitting at your baby music class, you're not fully there. In the same way, if you're checking the nanny cam or doing FaceTime with your children in the middle of the office, you're not fully there. So one of the ways that time does expand is when we are fully present and we make the most use of the moments that we're in. And I find that many people fill their calendars with meetings, as you were saying, but those meetings run too long. So I suggest to people, don't assume it's an hour meeting. In fact, to the best of your ability, only schedule half-hour meetings Where possible, if you're co-located with your colleagues, make them standing meetings. If everybody is standing up, they want to get done quickly. And it's very hard to sneak a peek at your um, email under the table. So don't don't just default to the the time slots that you're accustomed to. Really think about how much time you need. How much time do you need? And give people the gift of time, right? Everybody wants time back. We're all time, you know, we all are experiencing time time poverty. So when it comes to a meeting, think about who really needs to be there. Does somebody need to be there to kick off the meeting, but they don't need to be part of an ongoing meeting structure? Let them roll off. How about the person who would love to be in a meeting? Where can you delegate the experience of being at the table to somebody else so you get more time? So there's a certain rhythm we get into of everybody being at meetings to feel included are important. Those meetings are always for an hour. They're scheduled back-to-back. You don't even have time to go across the hall to the next meeting, let alone change elevator banks if you have to, or get across town. So then people are late, and then it becomes the norm that people are waiting for one another. And I can go on and on. so much... (laughs) You know, there's so much time that is misused. So one thing is about controlling the timing of the meetings. The other is providing gaps where you're doing what needs to be private work and you're doing what needs to be group work. So I want to ask a question about an aspect of life with a digital calendar and Mm -hmm. how we deal with it interpersonally. So the first time that I worked in an organization where other people could view my count, I was no longer in a paper notebook. People could see Mm -hmm. my open slots. Mm -hmm. Um, People would look on my calendar to see when I'm free, and they grab Mm -hmm. a chunk of time. I do it to other people, too. Like, oh, there's half an hour. I can get in there. But then when I discover, at least it's happening to me, and I never think, am I doing this to somebody else, that now... Um, I'm scheduled up to the minute of the last meeting. 
And I've made my life hell, and I'm likely either leaving a meeting early or late for my next meeting. How do I deal with this with my colleagues so that I'm being respectful of them and I'm present where I am? There's a couple of ways that you can do that, Laura. One is actually to have a conversation with the colleagues and say, what do we think about having 45-minute meetings and we run them on the hour? Okay. Right, because that gives us all time to transition. Okay. And so, by the way, I took your advice and we're starting that in my office. But what do I do when it's not our team? So one of the things that you can start to do is to say to people, when, when requesting a meeting with me, please indicate... What, the, what, the, what it's about and what my preparation is, or what my role is. But something to say that I will accept the time in my calendar, because people will put on your calendar, but you can also, of course, go back and decline it. Right. Now, it gets a little tricky, but if you have set up some parameters where I will accept any meeting where it's clear what the agenda is and what my role is. Because that's a way of saying to your colleague, you'll have my time, my attention, I'll be prepared, I just need to know what it's about. That's one of the things that you can do. And it starts to infuse an awareness across the people that interact with you. When you start to do that and people like the, the behavior, whether they're inside or out, they may go, oh, you know what? I like what Laura does. <laughs> that's, that's, so that's, that's one thing. And there's a lot of things that Laura does. So that would be great. Let's do some more of that. I want to be like her. Um, you know, the other is to put into your calendar, you know, some times that are your gap times. You know, uh, that when do you get to... Just close your door and do some work. Now, obviously, when you are being paid to do a job, you can't just block out the whole morning and go to the gym. Right? But on the other hand, there are times where you have a deadline and you need to be able to have your thinking time. And to put that into those open calendars and to indicate, you know, this is you know, Laura working on X. Right. So to be able to identify that, I'm not making up a story about doing one thing and I'm doing something else. I'm demonstrating that there is a block for me to focus on this deliverable that anybody that's working with me would know is very legitimate, and And, I need that time. And that totally reinforces what you were talking before about before. I think two points. One is to be intentional with our time and how we use it. And then the other one is um, going back to that suggestion you made before is communicate back to the people we're interacting with about the parameters that we need to follow. So one of the things that I want to explore that you talk about um, with tremendous, I think, insight and dimension in the book is um, how to be a good guest and how to be a good host mm-hmm. and why this is important, not just in life, but particularly in our work. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was writing the book, you know, the book has four sections and it starts off with you know, some of the things we were discussing, which is about how to establish respect. And it moves through to how to become what I call more popular, how to grow loyalty, how to resolve conflict, how to fight fear, and ultimately how to have a big impact. And in this section on fight fear, I put in how to be a good host. And my editor at McGraw Hill said, are you kidding? That's what you put into fighting fear? And I said, well, you know, if we're going to open our doors and our minds to people and ideas that are unfamiliar to us, everybody's going to be just a little bit uncomfortable. And why don't we do the best we can to eliminate the things that are, again, easy to do and will reduce the anxiety? So you bring somebody in from the community or, uh, or maybe even a competitor or a colleague you're having a difficult time with, and already emotions are high. People are anxious. They're nervous. Bringing somebody in, showing them where the restroom is, taking their coat, giving them the Wi-Fi password, cup of water, telling them where the electrical outlet is, it seems so basic. But what you're doing is you're actually helping to relax them. You bring them into a room. You make sure everybody knows who's in the room. You make an introduction that enables the person who's being introduced to stand up that much taller and to recognize that they are here to make a valuable contribution. So these set the scene for the conversation. Difficult conversations are easier when people are breathing better. And these things, like being a good host, 
help make that happen. So I, I want to break this down a little bit because I thought this was an interesting take. You know, um, I was always I always internalized the notion that being a good host is part of um, who I should be, you know, at home. But also it's to go back to some of the other things that you're you were mentioning before. Does it make you more likable? Does it bring more joy into your world? And those are could indeed be the case. Um, but part of what you're bringing into high relief is that gatherings at work have a strategic purpose. Um, mm -hmm. And they're often bringing people together to solve problems or cross boundaries. And with that comes a fair amount of tension and anxiety. And that before you ever start to figure out what are you going to talk about and how do you talk about, you actually could diminish the tension significantly simply by creating a framework of comfort. Yep. I mean, this was the oldest but still um, valid research studies on optimal performance, the Yerksey-Dobson law, has um, sh demonstrated that there's a point at which we perform at our best and it requires a certain amount of activation. So if I am just so chilled that nothing is going to phase <laughs> me, I'm probably not going to be on top of my game. If I am out of my mind crazy with fear, I'm also not going to be at my best. So you need to have enough room, but not so much room, that you flip over to the other side. And so I try to help people find just enough anxiety. I want to be a little bit terrified, but I don't want to be mortified. <laughs> and the way to do that is not by torturing people, but it can be by doing things like bringing surprise into the discourse of a meeting. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> what kind of surprises do you like at a meeting for? <laughs> well, no, to be honest, you know, given that um, a lot of my group meetings are often around how can I help um, a team or a uh, part of an organization innovate move mm -hmm. past the thing that they've always done into doing things in a new way. And yep. um, part of that means starting to think differently and interact differently and ask different questions, which means I'm going to throw some things at them that hopefully they haven't thought about before. And when I do it, I'm kind of watching to say, see, okay, am I, is this being accepted? Are they comfortable? Are they going to take it and run with it? There's always that little moment of fear on people's faces or maybe even a little hostility. Um, and yet at the same time, um, and tell me if I'm doing this right, if we create a warm environment, a collaborative environment, a Absolutely. safe environment, we move past that into what becomes really fun discovery. Right. And so we hear a lot these days about the concept of psychological safety. So what does that mean? Psychological safety means I'm going into the work environment and I don't worry that I'm going to be judged harshly automatically, that in order to innovate, one needs to generate lots of ideas, many of which will not work. But if I'm afraid of the judgment of people rolling their eyes or worse, then I'm not going to speak. I'm going to self-edit. So if you build an environment in which people feel as if they will be listened to, they won't be judged harshly, they'll be forgiven, people will admit mistakes, suddenly you create a setting in which innovation is very different, much more possible. Mm -hmm. If you think about connecting as, again, the biological basis of behavior. We release oxytocin. That's the bonding hormone. It feels good. When we connect, we actually have that warm glow, that calm. And that also helps us to innovate and to create. So the things that we're talking about are all ways that you're stimulating your biological system to work in a way that's going to help you stimulate the ideas which are ultimately going to lead you to better solutions. And that's why I say this is not soft stuff. This isn't just the niceties. This is really about getting you to a better outcome. Right. So that when you were talking before about how when you smile at somebody, um, sometimes they automatically smile back, but it starts to change the whole dynamic of what's going on and that you build on it to create some warmth and some trust so that then when it's time to tackle the hard stuff, you're actually in it together and having some fun. So, you know, you talked about having a surprise at a meeting. So here's one for you and for the listeners to try. Start a meeting with five minutes of silence. And not because everybody's looking at their phone while they wait for one person who's late. Not that, right? In <laughs> fact, we, what I ask people to do is to take five minutes, put down everything, and to center themselves. 
Now, you can imagine people giggle, they sneer, they look at me. Often as a consultant, I come in, they're like, well, this is her last day here. Um, <laughs> but yet, the reason I do it is often because I can sense in the environment that people are coming in either distracted or ready for a fight. You know, good listening means not preparing your response, but actually taking the time to hear what the other person is telling you. Okay, you right there, to- if there is anything we should tweet, it's that. Um, And so when we come together as a group, everyone who comes into the room, they're coming from someplace else. We've already said people are late, they're distracted, they're checking out who's in the room, who isn't in the room, what they're wearing, who's whispering to who. And I ask people to just take a few minutes and to breathe, to think. And what happens is we actually start to breathe in the same rhythm. Again, biology kicks in. In those few minutes, people get to focus on what it is that they need to get out of the meeting. And my question is, how do you feel, want to feel at the end of this meeting? Does part, does part of calming down like that together um, help people be nicer to each other? Well, it does, and it almost does it automatically. Because now that I've been in a quiet space with you, I have felt your presence. We have truly breathed together. We have become more of a unified organism, whether we wanted to or not when we first came in. Mm -hmm. And they've calmed down. And then I ask people, how do you want to feel at the end of this meeting? And oftentimes people will say, like this. I want to feel resolved. Then it's like, okay, so now let's retrofit. What do we need to do to be able to have this feeling of connection at the end of this complicated conversation? So also then in facilitating the meeting, it's not just that you calmed everybody down, got everybody kind of physically in sync, everyone feels a little bit better, but now you're using that as kind of a guidepost so that you can re-engineer how you proceed through the meeting. Exactly. And so if you think about what we've been talking about, which is being fully present in the meetings that you're in and then being fully present when you're out of the office, doing things like this, which center people's attention, being mindful of everyone's time to be maximally efficient, being very clear about what the goal is and why everybody's in the room, having made sure that everybody is comfortable, as we talked earlier, that the meeting's purpose was already identified before people come in, all of these things contribute to greater clarity, greater role clarity, which reduces stress, greater personal comfort, which increases collaboration, and greater efficiency, which is ultimately what everybody wants. For those of you who are just tuning in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Dr. Melanie Katzman about her book, Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to know, how are you navigating meetings to get through conflict, to create a little peace? We'd really love to hear from you. That's 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So, Melanie, in giving us that example of when we're facilitating the meeting, how we can, you know, get a hold of it in order to um, get better aligned, get connected, and hopefully have a better outcome. Um, Talk to me about when we're starting with the problem and we need to initiate the contact to solve the problem. Um, What you referred to in your book as don't get mad, get dinner. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it's very easy for us to, if we go back to the conversations we have in our own head, that we create identities for people and we assume the outcome of conversations without actually having them. And I encourage people to not simply send an email, but dare I say, pick up the phone, call somebody, and try whenever possible to have some face-to-face time. It's so rare these days that it's very powerful when you make that ask. And sometimes you need to be really clear in saying, this is uncomfortable for me. But, you know, it feels as if there's been tension between us, or I've been watching the kinds of things that you're saying in the news, and I want to understand better why you say that, or I've seen the signs that you've posted outside of our building, and I really want to get a better hands on what the community is thinking. Or if you are somebody who is more junior in the organization, being able to say to someone more senior, I want to understand how you get your information. I want to learn how to develop an informed 
perspective. Okay, so I want to back down, back up for a second, because if there's anybody who's going to have the expertise to coach us on this, it's you. Um, in moments when there's conflict, people, um, one of the things, and you write about this, that when the harder the conflict is, the more strife there is at work, people will have a tendency to retreat. Mm-hmm. And that that's really a phenomenally dangerous thing to do. Tell me why. Well, because, you know, we were talking before about when you bond and how that release of oxytocin makes you feel great and ready and willing to collaborate. The flip side of that is cortisol. So if you think about the fight-or-flight response, if I get agitated, if I see somebody as attacking me or threatening me, what's going to happen? The blood is going to go into my feet and my hands so I can run or I can fight. It's not in my brain, that's for sure. It's not circulating around my heart. So when I'm prepared for a fight, I'm not thinking clearly. I'm not really feeling or intuiting properly. And yet we too often see people or situations as if they are going to hurt us. So I'm fearful of the future that I don't know. I'm fearful of the person I don't know. We close our windows. We close our minds. We prepare for a fight. And so, so much of what I've prepared in the book is a way for people to do just the opposite. That if you are concerned about an opponent, so to speak, do like a good athlete. Study them and understand them. Most good athletes know their opponent's moves better than they may know their best friends because they've been watching. So then make the approach, the warm approach, to say, I want to understand, and I want to understand directly. Now, not everybody is going to say, oh, gee, thanks so much. I can't wait to have dinner with you, even though you've aggravated me so many times. <laughs> but, you know, more often than not, when you are vulnerable and you present an invitation as a possibility with an explanation based on why you would like it, including some appropriate emotion, it is very hard for somebody to turn that down. Okay, so now talk to me about... So let's say we actually managed to first identify that, whether it's in the moment or maybe over the last month, we've been retreating. Mm -hmm. We've been avoiding the lunchroom, not coming to the voluntary meetings, um, doing our anything to just stay out of the way, duck and run for cover. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we've got to close, we've got to like get reconnected. And at the heart of it is that we're either pissed off or we're scared. We've somehow managed to reach out and extend the invitation that let's get together. Mm-hmm. We now, like, it's time to go. You know, we brushed our hair. We're walking over. Our hearts are pounding. Our palms are sweaty. Mm-hmm. little dry mouth. And we sit down. How do you open your mouth and start the conversation? Just like you start in the book, like, you know, say hello. Look someone in the eye. Right. How do you start that conversation so that you can get into the hard stuff without derailing the dynamic, without, you know, imploding the trust. So, um, one, so one of the things, you mentioned the word dinner, and I do want to encourage people that sometimes it's just having a coffee or it's just having a sit-down. Dinner can feel like it's too long and too much. So identify a piece of time that you feel you can get through. Um, and then there is a reason why you've made this invitation to that person. So dig deep and think about what it is why it's important to you, and why you hope it might be important or helpful to the other person. So that the invitation is for the two of you to have a conversation where you both leave it feeling like you got something more than you had been before you began. So I often ask people to prepare conversational gifts. Come prepared. I don't mean an actual present, but come prepared. <laughs> find out what is this person interested in. You, know, you may find in the office they seem incredibly dry, but you, you know, do a little you know, Googling, let your research help you, and find out, wait, actually, they volunteer um, for um, you know, help dogs. All right, well, wait a second. Now you both actually love animals. Let's just start with that. You have a bridge. Find some commonality. So come with perhaps a piece of news that that person might be interested in, some um, uh, perhaps a bridge that you can build between interests that you can identify that you shared. And if you can't find that, then just to be able to say, you know what, I appreciate that you took the time to have this meeting with me. I know that you usually leave at 3 and you're meeting with me at 3.30, which already tells me that you're giving me a great deal of respect. So it takes a little bit of research, but don't 
just walk into that meeting going, thank goodness I picked out the right outfit and I had a cup of coffee and my sweat has stopped. No, you have to do a little bit more than that. You have to think about what is going to help that person feel better because of the interaction they had with you. Yes, you're having that interaction because you want to feel better, but come prepared to be generous and come prepared. And so, and it's not just the outreach, but it's a kind of generosity of spirit to realize that any problem that exists like that is two people. So how can you bring them in by respecting them and their needs and what may be frustrating them? Right. I mean, one of, I mean, I'm going to tell you one of my favorite psychological tricks, right? And it's called, if I feel it, maybe you feel it. Right? So if I'm feeling undermined in this situation, if I'm feeling disrespected, hmm, I wonder whether there are other people on my team that feel that way. In fact, maybe I'm the one who's generating that disrespect. I'm so busy being concerned about whether or not I'm getting credit that maybe I'm grabbing credit and the people around me are feeling devalued. So a good conversation starter after the initial bridge building that we discussed is to say, you know, I just want to share some observations that I've been having about the way I've been feeling when I've been showing up at work. And I'm just curious whether any of this is familiar to you. Now, that's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But it's also bridge building, connecting, generating a hypothesis that allows somebody to then say, yep, that's actually how I feel too, or no, I don't feel that way at all, and be prepared to hear the disagreement and to try to understand why it's a different experience. But I think too often people believe that they are uniquely holding on to an emotion and that nobody else feels that way. And as a coach who's gone into many situations and had the chance to interview groups, what I find out is most of the time people are feeling the same way. They're just telling me and not each other. It's hugely helpful advice. I want to explore something relating to another branch of kind of uniqueness, which is narcissism. Mm, um, yes. So first of all, for the because you do a great job in the book of talking about when it presents itself and how you deal with it. But let's start off. Define narcissism for us. Well, so there's kind of what I call garden variety narcissism, and then there's really the malignant narcissism. So, you know, a, a narcissist is a person who cares more about themselves than somebody else, has blinders on to the, other, the accomplishments of others, and is always wanting to be the peacock in the limelight, soaking up the credit, and can at times be extremely abusive um, and, and unaware of their abuse by making sure that people are servicing them without really doing for others. And the reason I say there's a spectrum is that someone who is truly um, a malignant pathological narcissist is at one end of the continuum, but we have many narcissists in our midst. And I'd say all of us are a little narcissists sometimes. <laughs> and there's a real value in that narcissism, right? So that, you know, like everything, you want to get the right balance. You want a little spice, but you don't want to burn your mouth, you know. So you want to be able to, to embrace that narcissism within yourself, but not have it flip into selfishness or really pathological narcissism. And when working with narcissists, boy, it helps to know that you're dealing with one and to know how to help calm them down. How do you um, know when you're dealing with one that it's them and not you? Well, you know, one of the things is that you walk out of situations feeling bad, feeling like you're invisible. The credit is never given to you. Your opinion isn't asked for or your opinion has been solicited, but then never attributed to you or never responded to. You are continually um, being asked to be at the service of the other. I mean, some of the examples are just, you know, you're, if you're working for a boss who's so self-involved, they're running out the door and, like, literally grabbing the coat that you're holding for them as they're going into their car service without even thinking about the fact that you're going to be there all night, you are going to take three modes of transportation, and you haven't been told that you can leave your desk. Okay? So there is a self-absorption there. And when that multiplies over and over again, you start to realize that, wait a second, I've become invisible. And you know it. You feel bad, right? Yeah. So, um, so when you're dealing with the narcissist in your world, um, what ammunition can you give people? What tools can we have um, to stop it from hurting us and to help make it a little more manageable? So one of the things about narcissists is we tend to actually often be attracted to them. Because in the beginning, 
They are charismatic. What they're doing is fun. You want to be part of their party. They make you feel terrific because that's all part of kind of the seduction. Not necessarily a sexual seduction, but a come on, be with me because this is where it's at. So in the beginning, you feel really good. And then you start to realize that you're being diminished. In those moments, our natural tendency is to often fight for ourselves and to start to withdraw our praise or support of the narcissist. That makes narcissists attack. A narcissist lives on affirmation. When you start trying to assert yourself, while that's generally very healthy behavior, someone who's narcissistic has a really good chance of coming back and biting you. Mm -hmm. And so my recommendation is stroke the ego of a narcissist. Even down. even if it feels like it's like just the wrong thing to do, it really it will soothe the savage beast. But that is exactly the point, Laura. Right? And it sounds counterintuitive, and people say, "Oh, well, Melanie, that's either manipulative or self-demeaning." And I'm like, "Wait a second. Are we talking about survival? <laughs> right. Let's go in and let's say to the person, you know what? You're really smart. I really admire what you do. It's great what you have built here." I need to get your input on this in order to help X happen. Now, you have done a lot of ego stroking, but you know what? People lap it up. Even someone who's on the the low end of the narcissist scale, they still lap it up. And someone who's a flagrant narcissist needs to understand how they're going to benefit from the request that you're making. You've identified that it's about them. Why keep fighting it? Right. Recognize that this is your ticket in that if you can calm them down by recognizing their need for approval and your support of them, you can begin to make suggestions that help you while helping them. You're not a doormat. You're just an informed and intensive partner or coworker. So once again, it's coming back to a kind of fundamental kindness and generosity of spirit, even in the moment of dealing like with somebody where you'd really rather push back, that can actually go much farther to diluting the tension and enabling you to move forward together. Well, you, know, you talked about being tired or busy or overwhelmed with the to-do list at the early part of the show. And you know, I often think about you know, time expanding when we're generous, when we're generous with our time, our attention, our affection, our praise. And being angry, annoyed, and frustrated saps our energy, takes a lot of our mental time. So being generous, taking the high road, assuming best intention, it isn't just about good citizenship, which of course that is terrific, (laughs) but it is also about self-survival and energy. Right? If I uh, walk into situations believing that my presence will make a difference because I can insert positivity, I can help set boundaries, I can help give people back a few minutes of their day, I can provide information that others need, I'll feel good about it. Well, Melanie? I'll feel good about me. Well, you should feel good about you because you've done all of that with us and more today. <laughs> so with the Thank last you, few moments that we have, where can people find the book? Where can people find out about you? Well, so the book Connect First is on sale everywhere. You could get it on Amazon. Follow me on various social media handles, at Melanie Katzman. And my Facebook is at Melanie Katzman, Ph.D. Fantastic. Melanie, it's such a joy to have you back on the show. Enjoy the launch, and thanks for being here. Thanks so much. It was great to be back, Laura. Wonderful to hear your voice and to meet the audience again. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 